Welcome to the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Lyle. Our guest today is Ryan Cousins, the co-founder and CEO of Critical. That's K-R-T-K-L, the makers of the Snickerdoodle FPGA board. We'll talk to Ryan about field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs, and how they're different from microcontroller boards such as Arduino and Raspberry Pi. And we'll get the details on how the Snickerdoodle board, which is based on an FPGA ARM hybrid chip, actually works. Enjoy the show. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. Good to be here. So we'll get into a, a lot more background detail with you in just a couple of minutes. But to start off, how about if you just give us a brief kind of overview description of what the Snickerdoodle is? Yeah, sure thing. Snickerdoodle is kind of our our attempt to make more kind of typically advanced technology that isn't oftentimes isn't really available to people in education or makers, hobbyists, entrepreneurs, that's a little bit different from your kind of typical maker board. So it's some pretty high-end technology uh, wrapped in this miniaturized affordable package that's a little bit, you know, it also made it a little bit easier to use and interface with little, you know, a little less intimidating than kind of your typical, uh, you know, FPGA deep dive development board kind of thing. Um, so it's, it's a cool little tool for building some pretty advanced stuff, you know, computer vision, robotics, uh, you know, industrial automation type stuff, networking, a whole bunch of different things. It sort of, um, sort of falls into almost the, I don't know, industrial Internet of Things uh, kind of category. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of a, uh, a constantly evolving product, but it's an ecosystem and community we're trying to build out uh, that'll tap into people of all different experience levels, any, anywhere from kind of seasoned FPGA professionals to, you know, people starting out who might be hearing about FPGAs for the first time. Thanks, Ryan. So for those of us who have been hearing about FPGAs, and all we know is that we need one, can you tell me how an FPGA is different from an Arduino or Raspberry Pi, or or if that's the wrong question, or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, so the really the fundamental difference between, say, uh, an FPGA um, which stands for Field Programmable Gate Array, and your typical microprocessor or microcontroller that would be behind something like a Raspberry Pi, Arduino, BeagleBone, any of those types of things, um, is the reconfigurable nature of it. So typically, when you go to order or use a new micro, microprocessor, microcontroller, um, to these more traditional kind of embedded platforms, uh, when you get the unit from the factory, um, everything's pre-configured and hardware the way that the manufacturer has set it up. So you have a certain number of GPIO or PWMs, maybe SPI ports, different communication interfaces. Now let's uh, stop for a minute and talk about, say, so what a GPIO is, what a PWM is, um, and why why you might want more. Different components that you're interfacing with um, require kind of sort of a different, um, well, different type of electrical interface um, and software interface. So the types of signals that you're using to drive a 
uh, say a little servo motor um, for a little RC car or something like a little robotic arm or something like that um, are going to be completely different than the type of signals that you're communicating with, say, a camera with. So if you have a system that you're building that requires, say, multiple cameras, uh, a couple of motors, bunch of different sensors, say IMUs, maybe you have a GPS on there. If you're starting out on a project like that, you might start and say, okay, I need some sort of ARM microcontroller. Um, so I'm going to go over to, you know, ST Micro's website and say, okay, I need a, you know, a microcontroller with this many of this type of interface. And you kind of put your architectural diagram together, how the whole thing's ultimately going to come together. And you start doing your design kind of from the ground up. So you go through and say, all right, I need a Cortex-M microcontroller or something. You filter through and now you have 500 different options to choose from. And they're all different configurations of, you know, memory, uh, interfaces. Um, so, you know, GPIO for toggling things on and off, maybe. Uh, you might have a couple SPI devices that you're communicating with, depending on what kind of sensors you're using. Um, maybe you have a couple parallel interface cameras on there. You have these pretty sophisticated systems that you're integrating all together uh, under one roof. Um, the issue you run into is between projects and even within the same projects, um, all these requirements are constantly changing. So if you start out working on a project that has you know, three motors, two cameras, and I don't know, five temperature sensors or something. Um, but something changes throughout the course of the project that requires you to add a micro switch or some other type of sensor, like an IMU, um, or maybe a, an additional camera, or you change the motor type that you're using. That's going to require you to change your entire hardware architecture from the very, you know, from kind of from the ground up. So what an FPGA allows you to do, it gives you the flexibility to change fundamentally what that hardware is doing on the fly um, and that's done effectively I and mean, you can think of it as basically being done in software so as opposed to having a predefined set of peripherals that are controlling you know this this uh, set of components that you're piecing together you can reconfigure what the hardware is fundamentally doing so now you can interface with this different motor that you've now picked out, or you can add a couple additional of additional sensors. Um, once you get into more kind of advanced stuff beyond just the I/O capabilities of, of uh, FPGAs, um, you can actually get into much more serious applications that require, say, hardware acceleration. So when you talk about the kind of FPGA IP, just sort of the, the sort of weird industrial um, or commercial term, uh, it stands for intellectual property, which is sort of how these, um, these little FPGA uh, software blobs are defined. Those can be used to fundamentally change the way that the hardware works, not only from an I.O. perspective, but how it performs. So, um, for example, you can take a video stream in from uh, from a camera or some video, some other video interface um, and perform some real-time processing on it in the FPGA, in the hardware, uh, much more quickly than you could process it using, uh, say, a micro microprocessor, um, because the microprocessor, just like the way the I.O. are kind of pre-configured before uh, you, you get it from the factory, um, it's the hardware is set up to do things in a sequential manner in a very specific way, whereas FPGAs can be totally customized depending on what kind of data you're bringing and what you're doing with it. So you might not have, you can save a lot of processor clock cycles and you can ultimately require or, or produce much 
uh, more efficient designs by effectively turning your chip, your FPGA, into a little customized circuit um, that performs what you're trying to do in the most efficient way possible. So there's tons of different stuff, and it all kind of revolves around this this whole idea of as the you know the name would suggest the whole field programmability of the device. So it's it's really cool being able to not just necessarily be kind of fixed having a fixed architecture that you have to use. You know, you pull your Raspberry Pi or Arduino out of the box. You have you know half dozen GPIO, a couple of SPI, S squared C, some other random interfaces on there. Um, nothing says that with FPGA that you have to use same IO that you're given uh, kind of from day one, um, you can adapt it to whatever your project calls for, or whatever you're, you're trying to build. So with an Arduino, for example, an Arduino Uno, I've got uh, six PWM pins, which are pins. If, for example, I want to make an LED come up to different brightness levels rather than just being on or off. Um, what you're saying is that with an FPGA, I could have six, I could have 12, I could have 24 PWMs. It's just a matter of uh, downloading what you said, the intellectual property blocks onto the FPGA, and that changes what it does. And suddenly I have however many PWM pins as I want? Exactly, yeah. So the, for example, um, we have on our product Snickerdoodle, we have uh, between 100 and 125 FPGA I.O., um, depending on which which bitstream, which is sort of another, uh, basically like a, a effectively a hardware definition file, um, basically just, just something you flash onto the FPGA to configure it, um, that's generated by the FPGA tools. You can choose to have zero PWMs out of those 125 I/O, or you could have 125 PWMs. <laughs> um, so it's it's super flexible, and obviously any anything in between. Uh, so it's something that you would never really even think about uh, as a possibility if you were using a kind of your standard microcontroller um, or, you know, an Arduino, you're just fundamentally going to be fixed to whatever the hardware platform um, is defined to have. Whereas, you know, FPGA is sort of, uh, I mean, obviously there are limits, but for the most part, um, you know, within a range of configurability, uh, the configure the actual configurability of it is pretty much limitless. Yeah, so Ryan, in, in the answer you just gave Brian, how does that correlate to what I've read about the product in, uh, in that uh, you, you say you can upgrade the hardware by pushing out a software update? Uh, how do you go go about upgrading like that? Yeah, so it's it's pretty unique in in that you know there's a difference, there's a kind of a fundamental difference between having uh, an Internet of Things device that is purely software centric so in other words any sort of update or you know maybe you you push out an update to the firmware or um, some sort of you know user interface change something that you come up with down the line um, those are all pretty useful for for relatively simplistic uh, platforms what's nice about having programmable logic in an internet connected device is that there's nothing fundamentally preventing you from changing the way that the hardware is actually effectively built via software updates you can push out uh, you know using the same exact mechanisms effectively that you would use for um, a software update for a microcontroller or a microprocessor um, so just to kind of give a sort of a real world example uh, or theoretical example at least 
um, of a real world application where that could be used. Um, I like to use you know, robotics is a pretty common one because robotic technology is constantly changing and there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of different mechatronic pieces that kind of go into these systems. So if you ship out a uh, six axis robotic arm, um, to, to a customer and, you know, you're running it, you're powering the thing with a, with a snickerdoodle or, or whatever, with any FPGA. Um, if you down the road want to change from, say, for example, you ship the thing out with a uh, light curtain as a safety mechanism. So pretty commonly used straightforward safety mechanism for preventing injuries for industrial automation. Basically, there's a bunch of light beams crossing each other and, uh, you know, emitters and receivers and somebody passes their hand or walks through uh, the curtain, as it were. Um, the robot shuts off so nobody gets you know clubbed in the head with some big robotic arm swinging around. If you originally ship out a uh, an arm like that with that kind of safety mechanism, there's really if you were to build that with a traditional kind of microprocessor, microcontroller kind of architecture, um, that hardware is going to be fixed. So the type of I/O that you're going to use for a light curtain is completely different than the light type of I/O, generally speaking, that you would use for um, say a camera, a camera system. If you wanted later on, um, without replacing a bunch of hardware in the field, doing having to send it, to, uh, you know, you might have to send a technician out there to do some kind of plug-in replacement type stuff. But without having to spend a massive amount of money sending equipment back or forcing your customer to to buy, uh, you know, new upgraded hardware, kind of next-gen system, what you can do is over via, you know, some sort of wireless connection, for example, or wired something over the internet, you can push an, um, a new Bitstream, like I was saying, uh, basically essentially a new uh, IP block that you've now, you know, maybe developed over the last couple of years to have that light curtain be replaced with a camera system. And with a, a software update kind of alongside of that, what you can do is now have that robot work in much closer proximity to humans. So instead of having it be completely isolated in a little box, you could have someone working side by side and actually using a vision system to detect when a, a human is clo- too close or um, doing things too quickly or whatever whatever that interaction needs to be in some sort of industrial setting. You can fundamentally change those interfaces or in the way those interfaces work to be more to adapt really with your changing kind of work environment. So you can really take on a different approach when it comes to developing and releasing products out in the market because it gives you a, an opportunity to be much more iterative in your approach to releasing those types of things. You you don't have to delay things and delay things because, you know, your customer maybe changed the requirement and maybe now you got to go back and change your fundamental architecture, your product, or maybe the, the market is demanding something that you didn't have capabilities of before, which is going to, you know, cause additional delays. If you have the ability to kind of change at the hardware level what the system's capable of there's a lot more opportunity for even when it comes to kind of commercialization even for kind of providing additional upselling and hardware services down the line sort of almost like the uh, you know g's being in the factory as a service model kind of deal and with adapting hardware kind of in some ways it's very akin to the way um, telecommunications companies use software-defined radio in base stations so they don't have to go up and update the hardware every time a new wireless uh, kind of wireless communication technology is released. Um, they can last for several generations by changing the way that hardware functions. Um, and those are pretty much universally um, you know, running with uh, FPGAs as sort of their backbone. Brian, so Snickerdoodle is based on uh, 
chip or a platform called Zinc. And I understand that's got both an FPGA and an ARM chip in it. So you're you're running Linux on the device as as a developer, and you're also deploying these bit streams to the FPGA. What is how how is the work split up between the the ARM and the FPGA? And what ways do they have to interact with each other? Can they talk to the same pins? Does does one talk through the other? How does that all how's that all structured? Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a really good, really good question because ultimately the ARM side of this is kind of what honestly ties everything together and makes it such a compelling solution. So from our, a lot of our background, um, doing, you know, a lot of embedded system consulting work over the years revolved a lot more around using the ARM architect, various ARM architectures than it did with FPGAs. There's a number of reasons for that. You're going to find a lot more engineers who know how to work with ARM processors, you know, your kind of typical um, IDEs for you know, embedded C and C++ and Linux and all these types of things that are kind of based around these microprocessor, microcontroller architectures um, than you will FPGAs. Um, FPGAs are fairly specialized uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. You know, so we the, the, the issue with that, with sticking exclusively with an ARM processor is kind of the the problems that I was talking about before where it's just it's this rigidity um, really this, this lack of flexibility that you have with the hardware architecture and you I mean in our experience for these more complex kind of mechatronic systems um, it's really hard to find the exact architecture that you need for every project and every project requires something different so you go you start starting to you know, start learning a new platform, um, you finish a project, and then next time around, you have to basically reinvent the wheel because now you have to go back and pick a different architecture, maybe a different chip manufacturer or whatever it is. You know, the alternative to using, if you do want the flexibility of an FPGA with an ARM processor, is, of course, you could use two discrete parts. So you could just stick a Cortex, you know, in our case, we got a couple of Cortex A9s on there. You could just as easily stick on a little, you know, Spartan 6 or whatever, um, a little FPGA and some other Xilinx FPGA on a board and have those two things talking to each other. And that's obviously how it was done for quite some time if you weren't using some dedicated FPGA and or ARM solution. What's really nice about combining the two together is performance. The performance benefits you get, size is also a factor, uh, cost and the tool chain and, and kind of the, the way things are architecturally built from a developer standpoint. So from a performance standpoint, um, kind of to address the, the question you had about how are these two things connected, what's really cool is the fabric, the programmable logic fabric that's on the... Let's talk about what a fabric is. Okay, sure. So the... The fabric essentially being the, uh, I guess you could call it the lowest level building block of how uh, of how these chips are put together. So you have these little logic blocks that are combined. There's you know hundreds, thousands you know of them on inside of this field programmable gate array. And what you're doing with this, they're all using a bunch of these interconnects to kind of tie a bunch of different blocks together, and that's how you're ultimately configuring the thing um, to build it into whatever it is you're doing. Maybe you're just connecting one pin to the other, um, you know, to do some I.O. reconfiguration 
or you're building, you can, <laughs> you can synthesize an entire microcontroller in an FPGA, uh, depending on what kind of, you know, level of sophistication, the application and all that kind of business. So the, these little logic elements, um, that are trying to, uh, in, the, in the fabric, the kind of programmable logic silicon are what's nice about this or cool about zinc is that those, uh, it's literally both the arm core, which is a, a you know, a physical arm core. So it's not synthesized. It's, you know, the same way that's, you know, your Raspberry Pi as a microprocessor, a physical microprocessor on the board. Um, same exact thing. So they're using that, that same uh, fabric or that same silicon. And that's physically attached to the FPGA at the die level. That connection is made using the same mechanism, um, the same physical mechanism that's used inside of the ARM chip itself. So they have uh, what they call uh, AXI, the AXI or AXI4, or is uh, interconnect that you know basically wires all the peripherals together on your ARM chip. And so it's you know different memory interfaces together and processing subsystems, the cache and the you know, your IO and all that kind of stuff ties together um, using the super high speed fabric, much faster than any other kind of embedded architecture you would ever use or sorry, embedded uh, uh, communication interface. Now, the FPGA, if you were using two discrete parts, would be connected to the ARM processor using some sort of other interface, some sort of high speed interface, PCI Express or something to that effect. The issue you get there is there's a lot of communication bottlenecks when you have a an FPGA, which is fundamentally designed to do a lot of parallel operations all at the same time, um, doing super high speed stuff. And if you're trying to communicate that to a higher level system, um, say that's running Linux or say a real time operating system, whatever it might be, um, you lose a lot of that advantage and you end up having that communication bus be a bottleneck, um, for, you know, between the arm core that you're probably communicating with as the say the system user or whatever you're doing. Maybe it's a, just a, bridge, a communication bridge or something like that to the internet and the FPGA, well, then these things both being on the same fabric, they share that same axi bus. Um, so you get an extremely high throughput. Uh, it's, I mean, they're, they're just, they are literally one in the same chip. And there's, you know, certain IO that are dedicated to certain things, both on the processor side and the FPGA side. Um, but it, it's nice because kind of the way, the way we always sort of approach it is if you're just trying to use um, a microprocessor. Say you don't need anything, um, any of more advanced stuff than FPGA allows you to do. So, you know, using building little hardware accelerators or synthesizing different cores and, and doing some of this um, much more advanced stuff. If all you're looking for is the IO flexibility um, that an FPGA provides, you can really just treat the this chip as if it were a microprocessor with a whole bunch of IO tied to it that you could totally reconfigure and effectively any way that you want, um, which is super powerful when you're when you are dealing with you know larger mechatronic systems or if you're hooking up you know multiple camera interfaces. Um, there's or, or doing networking and things like that. Um, it gives you a lot more a lot more potential applications can be addressed using this single architecture. And just to kind of give you a good example of a, you know, another kind of real world application of that, we were recently working on a, on a system that uh, for like six axis motor control, where what we were doing is driving multiple these 
permanent magnet synchronous motors with um, 13 bit, you know, encoders on there. Um, and you're doing all the, you have all the different, uh, ADCs and the sync filters and you have all this, this high speed stuff that requires the, the FPGA to interact with. Um, but you also have your kind of slower, you know, field oriented control, um, that you use for, for controlling these brushless motors. You have that that can, that is capable of running on the arm side of things. Well, <laughs> Doing performing that kind of you know high resolution high speed uh, motor control and that many axes while running Linux and an RTOS and all this stuff would be pretty much impossible and that's not even to mention the uh, the I/O limitations um, if you're just using a your typical microcontroller what you would probably end up or microprocessor you would probably end up doing is sticking you know three four five maybe maybe you just put six different microcontrollers down there each controlling a single motor and then you tie that back to some on some communication bus to another processor that's you know controlling all of those things you know using snickerdoodle for this allowed us to do is tie all all, all six motor motor interfaces to the fpga um we do the initial signal processing there that would then be handed off directly using the same axi bus to one of the ARM cores, which is running a real-time operating system, um, and that's doing the uh, you know field-oriented control and running the PID loops and all that kind of stuff. And then that is connected on the other to the other ARM core um, using something called OpenAMP, uh, which is AMP standing for asymmetric multiprocessing. So you have two cores running side by side, and they're both running different architectures, the software architectures. One's running free RTOS. The other is running ROS, which is running on top of Linux using one of their robotic control packages called MoveIt um, for doing this uh, common you know, add-on to ROS, um, which is, again, ROS, all these acronyms, but ROS is Robot Operating System, using a, uh, which is sort of a relatively commonly used uh, messaging system for building robotic systems, sort of like a, a component networking interface, I guess you can kind of look at it. Uh, so and that's running a package called MoveIt has all these bolt-ons and one of them is called MoveIt, which is used for path planning. So building an industrial robotic arm, you have all your motors over here, your sensors. It's tied through all the real-time motor controls running on one arm core, and your higher-level um, kind of path planning application-level uh, software is running on the other. And you have this all running on a single single part, which you cut down on a massive amount of software work and issues with communication and latency and all these different things that that are so fundamentally crucial to the operation of a safety critical system like something like an industrial robotic arm and really having the arm cores on there you know physical arm cores on there make that possible whereas you know that it's not that it wouldn't be you couldn't do it in any other way uh, it would just be substantially more complex, and you'd definitely suffer some performance benefits that you get and, and things like that. Ryan, can you share with us some details of you know how the idea for Snickerdoodle came about? What led you to develop it? Was uh, you know did you just uh, kind of see a void in the marketplace or in existing capabilities? Yeah, um, in a sense, effect, yeah, it's pretty much what happened. I mean, we we were doing we were performing all these these projects for for the people you know, embedded development projects. And there were a couple kind of key problems. One was sort of like I mentioned before, this issue of having to reinvent the wheel effectively every single time. So even though you're using 
pretty much the same architecture for all these different systems. There's so much redundancy in what you have to redevelop each time you start a new project. And our frustration kind of came from the fact that there, there really, there was all this stuff at the, the low, low end, I guess you could call it, um, stuff that's great for either learning, you know, like, like Arduino as an example and, Things like Raspberry Pi, where, you know, Raspberry Pi is a pretty capable device, but not really for the types of real world systems that we were developing, um, where it does have a lot of mechatronic integration and, you know, some pretty high end requirements. Uh, but then once you get into that, that kind of stuff, the next tier of kind of development tools, you know, range anywhere from the several hundred to several thousand dollar range. Um, and there's just this big gap in the middle there. And, and even the stuff that was expensive, um, even if you could afford to do that, if the budget you know kind of allowed for it, um, it was still hard to use. I mean, there's a there's pretty big learning curves with a lot of the stuff, uh, as you can imagine. I mean, it's pretty pretty capable hardware, but a lot of the times, you know, all you wanted to do was just be able to reconfigure your I/O, and there wasn't there wasn't in a really you know, easy to use and understand an affordable platform out there for, for doing something like that. And we, we did start down the road developing Snickerdoodle as a sort of higher end industrial kind of uh, whatever heavily commercial um, platform. But as we kind of got further and further down that the lack of kind of availability and accessibility to this, this type of higher end technology was really just, it was really frustrating. I mean, for, for even for us, you know, just as, if we're trying to develop our own stuff, what what would we go out and use? What would we go out and buy? So, you know, that was that was kind of the, you know, how we got into this in the first place. And um, so it was really just exposure from, from other projects and, and definitely seeing a, a void in the market. And a lot of it does come down to, I guess, you know, timing, kind of for lack of a better word, because even the parts that we're using now, you know, just the the zinc part itself just a couple of years ago was was several hundred dollars. So it wasn't really practical to build something that's, you know, on the same order of like a, a Raspberry Pi, BeagleBone type thing. Um, some the hobbyists can practically afford. So, yeah, it just kind of kind of all came together and with some a little bit of careful thought into, as far as how to tie that into the uh, into the kind of maker and developer community side of things, as well as the whole connectivity and, you know, kind of the Internet of Things or industrial Internet of Things side. They kind of just all all came together, I guess. And why did you choose the name Snickerdoodle? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one we get a lot. Uh, there really isn't any awesome story behind it. Um, we we did want something a little bit friendlier that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna scare people off. Um, sort of, you know, barring from the the kind of uh, uh, Raspberry Pi approach, where this this kind of technology doesn't really need to be intimidating. Um, you know, with a little bit of a little bit of work, anyone can get it. And I mean, we also kind of wanted something kind of fun and something we could string together for potential future product names and, you know, uh, looking at all sorts of different desserts and, and the cookies, <laughs> cookies came up and Snickerdoodle was the best cookie name we could find. So <laughs> it's kind of stuck. Thanks, Ryan. So if people want to find out more about you, Snickerdoodle or Critical, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, they can check out, uh, check out our site. Well, right now, if you go to snickerdoodle.io, uh, it'll actually redirect uh, right now to the crowd supply site. But at some point in the future, it'll, uh, redirect over to our main snickerdoodle page, um, or critical.com, uh, com. Uh, that's a just kind of a more generic business website, but, uh, people can also email us hello at critical.com. 
uh, you know, or, or reach out to me personally, uh, you know, I'll get back to pretty much trying to respond to every request that we get. So great. Ryan Cousins, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you'll never miss an episode. And you can visit us at O'Reilly.com slash hardware. For the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast, I'm Brian Jepson. And I'm Jeff Lyle.